the one thing we have to worry about are false prophets. And you know, people can extricate themselves from false prophets and you're, you know, thank God you've done that because false prophets can cause tremendous damage. Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm Petra Belzebor, and this is the place to discuss tips, tricks, and hacks to build your resilience through your worst rock bottoms and get you to a place of success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life, professionals, individuals who've been through their own adversity, and allow them to share their authentic and real life stories, opinions, and ideas about how to utilize our worst rock bottoms and allow them to catapult us into success. Welcome to the show. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. We're actually in the midst of isolation, COVID-19, all sorts of things going on. Um, and I've got Scott Shea um, calling in from New York, yeah? Um, yes. Well, welcome to the show, welcome from New York. It's a pleasure to be here it's and great. interacting been, well, with people. Been, I know, right? We've been scheduling this for so long that we almost have had to remind each other of like, why are we here? What are we doing? Is this is there still a point? But I'm actually really excited about this after our little pre-chat. Um, so you are the co-founder uh, of, a, a, of a bank, right? Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you do. I know you're an author. Give us a little bit of scope. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm my, my, I guess my claim to fame is I'm a co-founder of a bank in New York that started from scratch. Yeah. No deposits, wow. no nothing. We opened our doors May 1st, 2001. Okay. And we had $42.5 million in capital. And we broke even in 21 months. We went public in 34 months. And today we're a $51 billion bank solely from organic growth. And in other words, every person who's a client, who's a depositor, walked in the doors. We didn't buy any other banks. So oh, that, that's a hard road for for any person but you must that's um quite profound to be able to go because that's not that long ago it's it's uh, we opened our doors about six months before the world trade center wow uh, was felt which was uh, another great punctuating point in human history absolutely so you are i would suggest you're quite resilient like you can bounce back from things and keep moving forward well my father was an uber bounce backer and and he taught me so as we talked in a little bit before and it's in my i talk about this in my book my father was a holocaust survivor he was about he was less than 14 years old when the nazis arrived in his town in Svexner, lithuania wow okay and i've actually recently read and listened to quite a bit about generational trauma and mm -hmm. how that experience through the generations can have an impact even if you're essentially safe like would you agree with that? Like, what's the impact? Oh, I would agree with that. And But it was also hearing his story, not only, it's not something that was taught, it was caught. Yeah. In other words, because, you know, I am his son. And so I, 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 I imbued what, what happened. I mean, he came back from a, he bounced back from watching essentially his father be murdered in front mm -hmm. of him, his brothers, his younger brother, his other brother was away and was murdered too. His aunts, his uncles, his cousins. He was deported to slave labor. Um, then 
spent three months in Auschwitz where he was, and I say this in quotations and air quotes, he was, you know, lucky enough to mm-hmm. be then moved out to a work, a work detail to Warsaw. Then he went back to Dachau. He was put back to Dachau and then he had the, and this was the great fortune. He was liberated by the American forces who at that time already knew you couldn't just feed liberated inmates of concentration camps. You had a nurse in the back to health because my father was less than 70 pounds. He was probably days from death, certainly mm-hmm. not weeks or months from death. And he had something in him that got him through that, I mean, unimaginable period, whatever, whatever deprivations were going through, unimaginable period. Um, and it was a sense that I may not be liberated tomorrow or the next day or the next month or the next week, but I'm going to get through this at a very, very base, internal, deep level. And he instilled that in me, that no matter what happens now, you know, you didn't do well on a test, okay. Sure. (laughs) You know, you didn't get into whatever club or this, you didn't make the team. It's not the concentration camps. That was his... His sign, and you know what? There's, you, there's no comeback when someone says that. there really isn't. There really it's isn't. Like, so you, you almost had to learn the bounce back um, method off the back of what was so strong within him. Um, I've, I recently went to a conference, and they were talking about how there is actually a resilience gene. How some people, obviously, we have predispositions and can nurture and grow our resilience, but that some of us have it. Um, and he just does he. Um, kind of um, know where that came from for him, that, that, that complete knowledge that things were going to be okay? Well, I'll tell you another story about my father, which is that he was certain that it took a lot of miracles to get him to Chicago from, from, sure. from Svexner, Lithuania, through work camps and concentration camps and details where people were just expected to all die. And he knew that, you know, behind you, there's a pillow. He knew if that pillow were not on your right, but on your left, just that little change, he would have been dead. So many small things happened that he was certain and convinced that, that, that miracles got him to Chicago, got him to marry, got him to be able to have a son, which was obviously me. But at the same time, he was, he, so he was certain of God. There was like, it wasn't one of those things, I believe, I don't believe he was certain. On the other hand, he was angry at God. Sure. And he, because, you know, God, you saved me, but what about my, my dad? His, his mother had died in childbirth previously. What about my dad? What about my brothers? What about, you know, the, the rest of my family? Everybody, I, yeah. yeah. And so there was a certain... There was a real toughness about my father that, that was with him all the time, that he wasn't going to let, you know, God throw tests at him that he couldn't beat. And, you know, I'll tell you one other thing, which is that at the end of his life, toward the end of his life, my father was, was, was run down uh, by accident by a, as a pedestrian. He was run over, and he ended up losing a leg. And he bounced back from that. And then subsequently he had other, um, he, had a, he had a stroke. And I still remember the doctor 
we were over his bed and my father was intubated and so he couldn't speak and and he was not in great shape and the doctor was talking about whether or not they should put a feeding tube well that could be bad that could you know and he was talking over my father which was never a good idea no probably not and um my father because my father had lost the ability to swallow at that point after the stroke and and the, the doctor said um well we've treated 40 year olds who have had and we've done ct scans on 40 year olds and they had with this same presentation or whatever the technical word is condition he said they don't come back and my father shook his head no and he not only became on he they not only were able to remove the tube he taught himself to to swallow relearned it astonishing the doctors like you 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 know you throw something at him okay what's next yeah and what's next and there's people who maybe have built up a level of resilience maybe surpassing other people through tragedy trauma all sorts of things that might have happened to them where COVID-19 a possible economic crash like people losing business like all sorts of things happening not to mention health and there's almost like a I mean, I relate to it. There's like a cool collectedness kind of observing it with a certain piece of, all right, well, like bring it on. Like I can handle this, you know? Yeah. And I, well, I'll tell you something that I think, and this, this ties into what, what in a way got me to interested in the Bible, is that my father viewed life and everything that came in as a test. And he was yeah. going to win that test. Um, they're moral tests. You know, do you treat people the right way? Uh, and how do you react to situations? And if you, if you view them, I don't want to say dispassionately as a test, but as a search for what you're here to do. I mean, I have a view, and my father never said this explicitly, but I, I certainly took it from him, is that there are really two super duper important days for every human being one the day they're born and they had no choice in that that was a you know a good thing it happened yeah and the second is when they find out what they're here to do i like that and if and if you ever figure when you figure that out and you figure out you're supposed to survive you have a mission that is going to make this planet a little bit of a better place then you can really face up to a lot of tests, but if you're not sure what you're doing, if you're not sure what your, you know, what your meaning is, if you're, if you're, if everything that, that you encounter is an obstacle as opposed to a test. Yes. Uh, then That's a it's key a very difference. different outlook. It's a key difference. And what you're referring to is just that our mindset and our response to things is the difference between make or break. Um, I, I love um, Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, which probably echoes some of uh, your father's experience, which oh, is yeah. the one thing we have control over uh, is our response. Like that's the one thing they can never take away, like the, those sorts of things. And it's such a profound way to look at when, I mean, that that's like the chips are down, down, right? There's no other way of looking at it. And yet still, there are some people who could see that survival as their mission and just have this dogged belief that they're going to get through it in some way. And there's something just to be said, isn't there, for our mind taking over um, our body in a way. Um, what is your reason for being here? What's my reason for being here? I, I, that's, that's, this book that I wrote was part yeah. of it, I have yeah. to tell you. 
I spent five years writing in good faith and I took it on as a mission because I gave up basically just about everything but my family, my work, and I still drank wine. But other than that, I gave up bicycling. I gave up a lot of communal activities, uh, volunteer activities that I've been in. How come? Because I, because I felt I had to write this book. Oh, so you, and, you just cleared the path so you could hyper-focus yes. on the and, book. I had a hyper focus on because I have a busy day job. I mean, the bank sure. continues to grow, yeah. and I'm I'm very blessed that 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 we can do that. And yet, I don't think I don't view I view the bank as very important. I love the bank. I mean, I I'm a co-founder, but I think everybody has to have another reason for being here. And I felt that writing I I felt that writing this book about why it's rational to believe in God with all we know about science and the history of the Bible, historicity of the Bible and our sense of modern morality and the great misunderstandings of the Bible, I thought was very, very important. I'd read Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, all these names your listeners probably know, Letters to a Christian Nation, Why God Isn't Great, how God poisons everything. The God delusions by Christopher Hitchens from to yeah. you know lives in London these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's retired. Um, and Michael Shermer, who who's written a whole bunch of books, uh, about ten books. And and I and I started to. I didn't start. I heard a lot of people, even in my business world, say that they were very confused. They didn't know whether or not believing in God was sort of like believing in the tooth fairy and Santa Claus and whether it was something silly and ridiculous and indeed maybe dangerous. Mm-hmm. And then there were another group that, um, you know, said they were believers, but thought the whole thing was irrational, just didn't understand it. So they didn't really understand the world. And I searched for a book that I thought answered this. I read Karen Armstrong's The Case for God. I read a number of different authors. And I didn't think that there was anybody who certainly answered the questions the way I felt they needed to be answered. And that was a global book that could just talk about God. I mean, I spoke to, in my book, I speak to, and I interviewed Christians, Catholics, Protestants, Anglicans. Um, I interviewed uh, Muslim faith leaders. And I spoke, of course, to atheists and people who think of themselves spiritually as well and put this together in, in one accessible place. And so that, for me, that was an important part of my meaning. I mean, I really felt like I had to write this. And, and so I did. Just, and it sounds like it's going well and, and people, people are loving the book um, and uh, it's going well. What, what happened in the lead up to this? So you, you, you're seeing people not quite having the, maybe the right facts or the right information. Like, tell me about your own belief system and how perhaps it developed through your own difficulties or challenges. Certainly. Well, I started, I went to public school and it was a classic, I grew up in Chicago, as you may be able to tell from my accent, which I've never been able to shake. (laughs) Not that I have a problem with it, but uh, I grew up in the public schools, went, had the standard Hebrew school. I don't know if you, you know, yeah, sort of. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Is what's yes. the transition? Yeah. Standard Hebrew school. I hated it. 
Okay. I thought, when am I going to be able to get out of here? Yes. And then at a certain point in high school, these questions, and I think it certainly was due to my father, because by the time I got into high school, I could really appreciate what he had gone through and, and why making sure that I was bar mitzvahed uh, was important to him, mm-hmm. why being part of the Jewish people was important to him. Because he could have just, it would have been totally understandable that he said, you know, this is for, this is bunk. I'm moving on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so in my junior year of high school, actually end of my sophomore year in high school, but I changed in my beginning of my junior year, I decided to transfer to a Hebrew day school, a Jewish day school, and start to encounter texts. And one thing that's interesting is in coming to any kind of religious education, not having had any to speak of. Mm-hmm. You really come as the other in a certain kind of way. And you look at text freshly and differently. And over the course of my life, I had the ability to understand what the Bible was coming to do, which I think most people have lost track of. And, and so I wanted to get that done. I just felt it was my mission to write that down. And indeed, the book is doing well and reaching a lot of people. And 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 I'm gratified for that because I think people, let me just say this in short, people totally misunderstand the Bible. They think that the Bible was about, you know, the Exodus just, or we, we, and they think that idolatry, they don't get that the Bible came to overcome idolatry. And idolatry, we think of as a simple thing, you know, bowing down to statues or some wicked chants. But in reality, idolatry is a set of lies about power. It's about mm. ascribing super authority or superpower to finite beings, uh, individuals like us, ideologies or natural processes, or in the ancient world, animals, not so much today. Mm-hmm. So m- most people think we defeated the God King Pharaoh 3,300 years ago. We're done. We, we got it. But in reality, the whole 20th century was a, was a catalog of God, King, Pharaohs of idolatry, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, the Assad family, the Kim family, Hitler, mm. who used poet, the same poetry, tropes of poetry, pageantry, yeah. and the like, um, theater, all backed up with, of course, strong armies and networks of, networks of secret informers who enforced what they did. So we don't get, how did Stalin, kill, uh, starve a quarter of the Ukraine, kill all the kulaks, send tens of millions to the gulag, and no one questioned him. Or Mao ended up causing the death of 75 million of his comrades, and no one questioned their super authority. Yeah, yeah. They set themselves up as God, King, Pharaohs. So understanding but, but, and idolatry- And the people followed, and the, the people, people believed, which is the, the flip side, right? Mm. People follow, people believe. People have this tremendous- need to believe. And do, you, do you think that their need to believe is also their need to, or desire to give up their responsibility? Because taking responsibility for your life is hard. But if I can give up the major decisions of my life to that leader, then I can sort of float along and blame them if it goes wrong. Or Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. You, you actually hit the nail on the head, which I think is why I say idolatry is the default mode. So most people want to park their brains at the door and yeah. find someone to tell them what to do. Yeah. And by the way, that happens, and this is what I talk about in the book, it happens so much in the so-called monotheist world 
where people are looking for soul spokespersons for God. And, you know, I don't have to read the Bible. I don't have to think for myself. I don't have to figure out what God really wants. What would an all omniscient, I'm the benevolent being want? This person is going to tell me what God wants. So I can park my, my brain at the door. I'm going to do whatever, he, whatever that he or she says. That's how you get the Jones Day massacres. That's how you get a lot of bad stuff. And, well, yeah. And so, yeah, so my listeners will know a little bit about my history and how it actually um, echoes that very pattern. So a cult leader with total charm and idealism and good kind of ideas at the beginning draws people in. Oh, we want to change the world. Hitler, we want to change the world. We think blah, blah, blah. And like the top line can feel pretty idealistic and interesting. And it draws people to that sense of belonging. And finally, I find my place. And it can be a slow, almost chipping away. So we think we're fully engaged with our brain and all of that, but actually over time it becomes, well, just let, 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 let me do the thinking. Let me do the communicating to God. Let me do the, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then, and then um, for us, it very much became, and, and for many of the ones that the examples that you used as well, if you then start to doubt or to move away from that sort of thinking, you can be ostracized, killed in worst case scenarios, right. but certainly lose your sense of belonging and purpose, right? Absolutely. And, yeah. and look, the Bible warns about that. The third commandment to the Bible, the way at least Jews and I think Catholics, and I'm not sure about the uh, Anglicans, but some other Protestants, some Protestant sects count the Bible. The third commandment is don't take God's name in vain because for this, there is no redemption. Now, what does it mean? In Hebrew, it means the word of shav. It means to take. It doesn't mean what some people say to swear in God's name. It means that anytime someone sets themselves up as the sole spokesperson for God, they are breaking the commandment that can't be overcome because they convince other people and the other people cause harm. And that's really dangerous. That's why the first commandment is, you know, monotheism. The second commandment is idolatry. And the third commandment, which is part of that, is don't turn, don't weaponize monotheism into making it idolatry. And unfortunately, sadly, that happens way too often in modern society. We can probably both give a long list of examples. But even with religious leaders, right? So, oh, yeah. Yeah. So and from that's, many different faiths, that person rises up and it happens over and over again, doesn't it? And it becomes exactly what the Bible warns about, which are false prophets. The one thing we have to worry about are false prophets. And you know People can extricate themselves from false prophets, and you're, you know, thank God you've done that because false prophets can cause tremendous damage. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, the Bible and history are are yes, filled, riddled, riddled with examples. Filled. Yeah. And there's one other thing that I like to that I'd like to to mention with respect to idolatry because it's not, and you're you're with with cults, it's true, with you know Hitler, or Stalin, it's true. But it's also true on our intimate encounters. And I've, I've thought about, well, how did a Harvey Weinstein or a, mm. or a Charlie Rose or Matt Lauer or Kevin Spacey or the list goes on and on. It's a huge list. How did they get away with what they got away with? And the answer, I think, also is they set themselves up as idols. They were unquestioned and unquestionable. Charlie Rose at CBS, what he said was truth, just like what Pharaoh or someone else said was truth. If someone contradicted him, Mm -hmm. that testimony was false. So 
if you're uh, if you have if you're a Harvey Weinstein, you have you can't you know obviously don't have superpowers and you obviously don't have an army, but you do have super authority. And you do, and you, well, you can the just, whim can make someone get a job, not get a job, and it's seeing through yeah. that idolatry, that self deification that on an intimate encounter level can be a very powerful paradigm for people. Which then gets reinforced, like you say, by when you have resources, when you have money, you have power, you can tell people that they're going to lose something if they don't, you know, it becomes that control piece. Um, you know, and there's a lot about the patriarchy and the white men and money and all of that behind the scenes, right? Um, that yeah, I just interested that your list was all men as well. Um, but of, just well, because of society, of the way society has been set up. Right. Well, look, we have the, the person, Holmes, um, uh, Catherine Holmes, who started Theranos. Um, I don't oh, know, you my. know, the blood, the, the blood, it was a huge startup. She actually probably boarded into that too. I'm, oh, there's plenty of women. Yeah. Yeah. So there are I women think. too. Yes. Uh, you know, and I do think that, look, the Bible is also pretty subversive about women. I mean, if you read the, and, and, but they had to be smart than they were. I mean, you know, when, when Pharaoh says, here's, here's, I'll give you an example. And it really, I think it's, it, it hits, it hits what you're saying. When Pharaoh said, murder all of the Israelite boys in the birth stool, send them, you know, throw you know, get mm. rid of them. Tell the, tell the parent that they died at the birth stool. What do they do? These Egyptian midwives are heroes. They're the first civil disobedience. They know they can't say to Pharaoh, um, you know, that's really unfair. You know, that's yeah, yeah, not yeah. right because they'll just have them executed and then they'll yeah. say, what's for lunch? Yeah. So what they did was they was smart. They understood his scent of lies that he had in his brain. And, and that's what idolatry is, a set of lies. And he, and they said, oh, the Israelite women give birth too fast. They give birth and the, the Hebrew word is chiyot. They give birth like animals essentially is what they say. It's not usually translated that way, but that's what they say. Yeah. And so we can't do anything. And wonderfully, Pharaoh believes it because his, his prejudice is that these Israelite women are not human. They're not like me. They're not like Egyptians. Yeah. And they win. But they have to be really, really clever. And you have a lot of examples in the Bible where women are really, really clever in terms of leading the fright. Look, there wouldn't have been a Moses if it wasn't for a mother making a, an ark, little ark, the sister running along mm. the Amazon, not the Amazon, the Nile, the Pharaoh's daughter taking him out. I mean, actually, in the Bible, although it's clearly about a patriarchy, yes, clearly. women, <laughs> nothing can go forward without the women. The whole Davidic line is saved by a a smart woman who comes from nowhere, Josephat. I mean, it's about women being really, really clever. And that's why there are a few people who think that there are some women authors in the Bible too. I, I, I think you might be right. Um, so why just get, get into the premise of the book and applying it to our modern times? Why do you think, because I think you cover this in the book, that um, having a belief in God is useful now? Because from my perspective, and I haven't said this clearly, um, I'm probably agnostic, so I wouldn't believe uh, in God, but I don't, I'm not as committed to like become an atheist, you know, and really have an argument against it. I just kind of let it go. Like my, my uh, whole childhood, we were just obsessed with right, wrong, black, white, God, 
that believes this, this, like this whole like knowing. And it was mm -hmm. so certain. And as I grew up, I realized you can't, you can't be certain. And actually flowing with life and building resilience is being able to roll with the uncertainty, you know, um, and, and being able to fly through that. And so in the midst of the uncertainty that we're experiencing now, I have a deep knowing that there's something wider out there unexplainable. I'm not going to explain it, but I do have certain tools and systems to help my own mindset to connect me into consciousness and a sort of a belief system around that, which I don't evangelize, but I just utilize for myself. So from your perspective, why? Because if we just went through a whole list and we could catalog, catalog the list of, of negatives around religions, belief systems, wars, the whole, the list is endless, right? So from your perspective, why is it important to have any kind of belief in God? Well, look, I'll boil down the whole Bible to one, and I'm going to quote Hillel, who said this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don't do what is hateful to you unto someone else. The rest is commentary. Because if you don't do that, if you just make sure that you don't do what you wouldn't like done unto you, then you essentially don't self-deify. And if we all just don't self-deify, this world would be a much better place. If Harvey Weinstein or whoever hadn't put themselves up on a higher plateau, then, and if uh, certainly Hitler and Stalin and Malpata and, you know, a bunch of leaders that we probably have in mind, each of us today, didn't put themselves that they're better than others, the world would be a lot better place. Because what the Bible is saying in the first lines are, we all have some sort of spark of divinity. We all have some sort of spark of humanity. God is within us. Shared. Yeah. We're all brothers and sisters. We're not better. No one's better than the other person. And if we don't do what we want, what would be hateful unto us and to someone else, it's the negative way of saying the golden rule, do unto others what you want done unto you. Yeah. But Hillel said it negatively and that's why i like his formulation the best because we don't always know what's best for the other person True. we have to be modest about that let's mm -hmm. not let's just not do what we wouldn't want done unto ourselves we don't, i don't want to i don't want to be feel like well it would be good for you if i could convert you to some belief system no that's not right yeah i would yeah. i would i want someone to convert me to a belief system no just don't do what you wouldn't want to do in this day and age that I think is really, really important. And, and I actually, so I would, I would agree with you 100%. Um, and I can have that value system that I will, to the best of my ability, want to treat other people as I want to be treated, not hurt them, do good in the world uh, to the best of my human ability and not believe in God. So I can get that from a different place. It's more of an action and a deed rather than a belief system in a way. Or, or a belief system connected to a God, right? right? So, yeah. Well, let me give you, look, I think it is perfectly, perfectly fine to be a, an agnostic, an atheist who follows the golden rule. And I can make common cause with anybody who follows the golden sure, rule, sure, whatever sure, sure. their belief system. Yeah. But I do think that the idea of us all having a spark is something that we've internalized in a important way. Because if we don't believe it, there is a slippery slope. Let me give you the example of today. And I write about this in my book. I didn't, I didn't obviously know anything was coming. But I talk about, uh, I talk about Peter Singer, who uh, 
some of you may know, some of your viewers may know it, or listeners may know it, he is essentially the leading moral philosopher of atheism today. And he very closely follows Christopher Hitchens. And what he does is he takes a atheist moral philosophy and then tries to play it out. And he has this sense of personism. And his, and I write about this in the book, his idea of personism is that some people aren't really persons. If a child is born and they have severe defects, they have severe challenges, severe disabilities, mm-hmm. uh, that they shouldn't be allowed to continue to live because they're a burden on society. And past a certain age or past certain levels with elderly folks having problems, they shouldn't be given uh, expensive medical care. And I spoke as so part of that my, kind of survival of the fittest, illusion, a little bit, evolutionist. And, yeah. But but he does it differently. He's essentially a utilitarian. The greatest good for the greatest number. I spoke to, as part of the research for the book, the medical director of a leading U.S. insurance company, who said, "Scott, if we just stopped giving medical care for any person below 30 days of age and above 75." we could save at least 20% of healthcare costs in the United States and send every young person to college for free. Isn't that a better trade-off, right? That'll be a debate, wouldn't it? Well, but that is a debate that you could have right now with COVID. I mean, most people who get COVID, look, we just had in New York the first, excuse me, minor, the first person under 18 who has sadly succumbed. But the overwhelming bulk of people who die are over 70 who have some other complications. That doesn't mean other people don't die, but from, again, this medical director or Peter Singer's cost-benefit analysis, if you let all those people just clear out the nursing homes, you gave them palliative care. You certainly don't want to hurt them necessarily. You gave them palliative care. uh, It would be over at it, and you wouldn't have to shut down in New York the economy is shut down. That is having implications to all sorts of people. I mean, yeah. people don't have money. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And no matter what the government's doing, they just passed a $2 trillion package. That can't replace people actually working. So Pete Singer, or a moral philosopher based, and it would be totally logical. It would be based upon principles mm-hmm. of the greatest good and calculations. Well, we're having this huge economic loss. And only, you know, and I say this in quotes, obviously, of course. Uh, you know, only 100 or to 240,000 people would die worst case, most of whom are old and have, and have parallel morbidities. Well, let's just keep the economy humming. And by the way, that's happening in some places in Belarus, where you have an idolatrous leader. Um, you have in the in all candor, in the least religious country in Europe, Sweden, which is just going about its its way, they haven't cut back anything. I don't know. Mm. I think they've even they may even have sporting events going on. So there's certainly an argument either way. Well, but that's my point is is that we've so inculcated the Bible that we have taken the view that everyone is a, has a spark of divinity, and yes, we other people are willing to take on a burden for other people because would we want to be one of those persons who are sacrificed for the greater good well 
not so. Well, or would I mean, you want it to be, even if you were young, if it was your parent or grandparent, would you then right. be like, oh yeah, of course, for me, I would give that up, you know? Um, it, it gets a little bit more personal then, doesn't it? It does, and but that's what, that's, that's why I think we've inculcated the Bible. That would not be the way, I mean, certainly a Stalin wouldn't think that way. Certainly Hitler actually murdered 70,000 Germans because they were disabled people. So he would say as a classic idolater, well, it's okay. And we're seeing other people make that argument today. It's okay, you know? So that's- um, Macro basis. Yeah, so that's a way that the, the Bible or the, the, those sorts of belief systems have infiltrated or influenced um, cultures. Um, but what, on a personal level, what can a belief in God, what does a belief in God give you? So on a day-to-day, -day, on a personal level, what does it give you? Well, on a personal, on a day-to-day, -day, it, it helps me center myself. So I have a practice of prayer. Some people have a practice of meditation. Mm -hmm. But I try to figure out what I'm supposed to be doing here on this planet Earth, um, how I can make it a little bit better place. And for me, having the image of trying to justify myself to an omnipotent being, to a being that knows everything about me. So it's like being under a really harsh light. It's like being under, well, I can't hide. I can't self-deceive because the being that I'm talking to knows everything about me. And when you have put that harsh light on yourself and when there's no room to justify, I mean, I'm like everybody else, I self-justify, self, you know, self-righteous, I'm self-everything. Yeah. But when you're, for me, prayer, and for some it's meditation, when I'm just putting that harsh light on myself, it's a self-corrective. It's, it's saying, okay, what do I need to do differently? What things do I in my personal or other life, any life business, communal, what am I cringing at and how do I fix that? And so for me, it is very personal because, and again, it goes to that sense of don't do unto others what you wouldn't want done unto you. And if you're, if you're, if you're praying in the right way, see, that's why I don't like rote prayer or just everybody's you know, gonna follow some sort of hymnal. Yeah. I think that real prayer is that's that deep, deep self-reflective prayer that requires, by the way, that you think for yourself or that I think for everybody think for themselves. And I think that is also a, a corrective to cults, a corrective to saying, well, that, that fellow, that man or woman, they're going to tell me what to do. No, I think real prayer and real self-reflection is about figuring out that for yourself and if you're doing a good job, you're going to cringe and you're going to say, I got to change this, that. It's going to feel other. uncomfortable, just like any change or having a light on you or that accountability is what I'm hearing. Um, it just makes you step up that little bit more into uh, your potential, but your service. So who can I be in the world to create some sort of uh, difference or be who I'm supposed to be in the world and have that accountability for it? Yes, that's exactly, that's exactly it. And I love that I actually, you know, feel like I've made a lot of progress because uh, probably 15 years ago when I was still, you know, somewhat indoctrinated and trying to find my way, I certainly went for a couple of, a good, yeah, five, 10 years of going, I won't even engage in this conversation because you're going to buy into your belief system. I'm going to buy into mine. There's no middle ground. 
let's just, you know, part ways. It's not going to be worth it, right? Um, but, I, but I actually feel like we're all entitled to our belief system that is right for us. And whether it's God or, you know, I might use words like the universe and, you know, people might use other language around accountability. I love that there's this common thread of how can we all be self-reflective, take responsibility for our behavior, show up in the best way we can and have these dialogues, which allow us to learn from each other and be on the same side, essentially, as far as the, the difference and, and the challenging of, of idolatry, as you refer to it but the challenging of those, those belief systems that are controlling and are not useful for our overall. Uh, so, I, so I love that we're able to just open that dialogue and that you are writing or that you have written the book uh, to put that language out there. Yeah, I look, one of the nice things about doing book tours, I got to meet a lot of atheists. I can imagine. And, <laughs> And, you know, there, look, there's some atheists who are angry. They part, were going through that earlier stage that you, you, yeah, you went yeah. through. And I met a lot of those too. But most people who are looking for being moral, I think that common ground of the golden rule, I actually personally haven't found a better moral principle that can be shared by everybody. And if you just, if, we, if we're on that same wavelength, I can make common cause with, with, with anybody. It doesn't matter what the rest Absolutely. of their beliefs are, which are valid and they should have them. And I'm and well, they're partly, to question them. Well, exactly. The well, they're partly from their own conditioning, their own experience. And um, we've all got to figure it out in, in our own way. And that golden rule is translated in different religions, isn't it? Um, and I mean, I love maybe rightly or wrongly, I love picking and choosing a little bit. So I love a bit of that. I love a bit of Buddhist tradition. Um, I love just thinking about the universe in a more holistic way. I love, you know, because I mean, I've been alcohol addicted, depressed, suicidal, not feeling good, not taking responsibility or being my best self in the world. And those belief systems, moral codes in a way have given me that accountability to make the tough change that uncomfortable change to sort of be the, you know, and so I take the stuff that works for me, you know, in order to be that person that we've discussed. Well, you know, I, I had mentioned in the pre-show, I listened to your podcast. I don't know which one it was a while back where you were walking Yes. and you were doing a self analysis of where you were. Pretty much self-reflected. And, and I was exactly. And I was thinking to me, that's prayer. You know, you sure. may not have been, been, it was the self-reflective saying, I'm not going to deceive myself. I'm going to look at myself with all my warts. And that doesn't mean I'm going to be able to correct them all. You know, we're all human beings. We're all flawed. Yeah. But I'm going to take a really, really good look at myself. And frankly, with everybody, at least in New York, shut in, uh, you know, now's a good time to deeply reflect on what we're going to do next. I mean, this is actually, I, as I said, I think life is a series of tests. And, okay. This is, oh, this is definitely up on the list of tests, isn't it, for many of us. Um, before I ask my final question, uh, where can people find you? And I know you have a second book as well. What, remind us what the book titles are. So my, my the book that I'm currently working on and promoting is In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism. 
It's available, I would say go to bookstores, but you probably have to order it on Amazon now, unfortunately, but do support your local bookstores. I'm a big, yeah. we have actually a link to independent bookstores where you can buy the book. Unfortunately, they're all closed. Of course. <laughs> um, it is also available on, it's also available on an audible book read by Andrew Todlis, who's got a much better voice than me. Lovely. <laughs> and uh, it's due to come out in paperback sometime in June. I don't know if that's going to be delayed. But anybody who wants to read articles, watch debates, I did a Google Book Talk uh, that uh, not too long ago. There's a whole bunch of, uh, of, of information at scottshay.com, uh, two T's, S-H-A-Y.com. And you can also reach out to me. Uh, there's, a, there's a form there. And the only thing I say, the only thing I, I caution listeners on is I sometimes get chapter length emails from people who are you know, keep it short. I try to respond to people, but keep the emails short. And I try to respond to those chapter length emails. It's hard to, you can't hard read to know every, what, everyone's yeah, book do that. that they're sending. Right. You. Can't do that. Uh, and it's, um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So good to have you. So um, I'm curious, finally, if life is a test, so tests are coming at us from every which way you've got a bit of your mindset, right? Cause you pray and you do some, some tools around that. What is the point of the tests? Like, where are you getting to? What's, what, what are you getting to? What's the point of the test, in your opinion? The point of the test is to make us pull down in a better place. I think that we okay. all have a share, or all of our responsibility, shared responsibility to make things better. And it was sort of, it's sort of going back to what I was saying before. For some people, the test is on a macro level. For some people, it's doing big, super big things. For other people, it's just doing the right thing at the right time for our families, for ourselves. I mean, those, those midwives that I talked about before, they never thought they would be thrust into saving a whole people. But when the time came, they did. And they made this planet a better place. And I think it's all of us. We, we don't know what we're going to be confronted with. We certainly, if you would ask me two months ago, I didn't, wouldn't have thought we'd be confronted with this. No. But yeah. it's about we, we continually have the opportunity to make this world a better place or a worse place. And I think and that's what it's all about. And, and whether we want to make, you want to couch that in, the, as, in terms of our role in the universe, our role sure. to God. Yeah our yeah. role to our shared humanity because we don't believe in anything but i think making humanity better that's that's what we're all in this and and we can't and shouldn't escape taking that on for ourselves we shouldn't say it's the other person's job i love that so take responsibility and if anything this test is an opportunity for us to show up and connect to our shared humanity whatever belief system is influencing you um, show up that now's your time to shine thank you so much for being with us we'll add everything into the show notes we really appreciate having you Petra it really was a pleasure this morning and um, it was um, it was you went you went deep fast so <laughs> you're a really good interviewer thank you <laughs> thanks so much 
Thanks for listening to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Please do subscribe and review on iTunes. Every comment makes a difference. We really appreciate hearing from you. And please do get in touch through petrabelzebor.com if you're interested in any training, coaching, therapy, or just to join the community and get more information on ways that you can build your own resilience. Until next time.